Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website. Our recent podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are also available from iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species, Kate Gracie here and today I want to let you know about a new documentary that's making waves around the world. It's called Unlocking the Cage and it's about the unprecedented lawsuits being filed by the Non-Human Rights Project on behalf of four captive chimpanzees in New York State. Now the film is currently showing around the world at heaps of international film festivals and the television rights are also being snapped up. And good news, Melburnians, it's included in the program of the Melbourne International Film Festival that starts at the end of July. So at the centre of Unlocking the Cage is Stephen Wise, who's a lawyer and animal rights jurisprudence lecturer and also the president of the Non-Human Rights Project. Steve has spent more than 30 years developing his strategy for animal personhood He started his career as a criminal defence lawyer but was inspired by Peter Singer's book Animal Liberation and he now dedicates himself to justice for animals. He helped pioneer the study of animal rights law in the 1980s and he was the first person to teach it at Harvard Law School in 2000. It's recently been said that the Non-Human Rights Project legal team are the happiest, huggiest and nicest team of supremely talented lawyers ever. That's a pretty awesome endorsement. I recently chatted with Stephen in Florida by Skype. The Non-Human Rights Project is truly unique. Can you tell us more about this organisation? The Non-Human Rights Project uh, is the only organisation that works for the, for the legal rights of non-human animals. Uh, we characterise ourselves as a civil rights organisation uh, that focuses on the legal rights of non-human animals. And so we're not an animal welfare, animal protection organization. Uh, we litigate you know, in the name of and on behalf of non-human animals. Our, our major concern is, is this, that uh, I have imagined for many years that there's this uh, high, thick legal wall. And on one side of that wall are the legal things of the world, and the other side of the wall are the legal persons. Now, a legal thing lacks the capacity for any kind of legal right. They're invisible to to civil judges. They are the the slaves of legal persons. A legal person is the master of the legal things. Uh, They have the capacity uh, to have an infinite number of rights, and they are highly visible to civil courts. And this wall with the thing and, and a person is really a dynamic process. 
So if you take a snapshot of the wall and see, see who's a thing and who's a person in the year 2016, you'll see that on the thing side of the wall are all the non-human animals of the world. And on the person side of the wall are all the human beings of the world. But there are also non-humans on the person side, uh, corporations, ships. In New Zealand, there, there was a treaty between the indigenous peoples of uh, New Zealand and the crown in which a, a certain river, the Wanganui Iwi River, was was a person who owned its own, which owned its own riverbed. Uh, and then on the on the thing side uh, are are non-human animals. But but if you had if you had taken the same um, snapshot, uh, say in 1770. You would have still seen human beings on the on the uh, person side, but not all of us and all the non-human animals on the thing side. But you would have seen many human beings on the thing side too, uh, slaves certainly, possibly women, children, the mentally ill, and a lot of the civil rights work over the last two centuries has begin has been to, you know, bang continually bang holes in that wall and move human beings from the thing side of the wall to the human to the uh, person side of the wall. And so what the Non-Human Rights Project is doing is trying to reopen those holes and begin bringing those non-human animals who are currently seen as things over to the person side of the wall where they will be they will have the capacity for one or more legal rights as well. Now, I understand the project is specifically concerned with um, great apes, with dolphins, whales, elephants and African grey parrots. Now, why? Why the African grey parrot? What the Non-Human Rights Project is doing is is looking at uh, such non-human animals as the great apes, as elephants, as um, as cetaceans, dolphins and whales, and even possibly African gray parrots for three reasons. One is that uh, they have been studied uh, for a, a very long time and that uh, uh, their uh, cognitive abilities are, are seen as highly complex. Uh, th and the third thing is that they are complex in ways that human bees, beings can relate to. So they are really the first plaintiffs that we are trying to bring from the thing to the person side of the wall. Could this be argued that this is just another form of speciesism to lobby for the rights of the most intelligent or the most cognitively similar to humans? I mean, why should intelligence be the mark of those who deserve our compassion? That rule certainly doesn't apply between humans. Well, we, we don't argue that. Uh, we, we, we don't argue that being intelligent or being aut autonomous, who is, which is what we're really arguing now, is a necessary condition for personhood. But we do argue that it is one of many sufficient conditions. Uh, and uh, because it's a sufficient condition and because we think that these species of non-human animals have the greatest chance of being the first to break through that wall, that's why uh, in our early years we're focusing on them. Uh, once we can bring any non-human animal from the thing to the person side, uh, we think that will catalyze a re-examination of exactly why non-human animals are things and a greater willingness to begin viewing a, a wide uh, variety of non-human animals as possible persons or rights bearers. Is the project seeking equal rights as humans for the chimpanzees that you represent, or are you seeking new laws that simply recognise chimps' right to freedom, or something else again? Uh, the the non-human rights project is is attempting to to bring any non-human animal over from the thing side to the person side, meaning that uh, the, say, a chimpanzee or an elephant or ha is currently is a thing and doesn't have the capacity for any 
legal rights. We're trying to bring them over to the person side of the wall where they they will be seen as having the capacity potentially for an infinite number of rights. And the first right that we are arguing is the right, is the fundamental right to bodily liberty that's protected by a writ of habeas corpus. So in good common law fashion, we are beginning uh, to, uh, with with one net, one small thing and then uh, and then moving on you know one step at a time. Can you explain the writ of habeas corpus? Sure. The a writ of habeas corpus. Um, uh, it, it, it's an ancient writ. It's it's uh, it, it's first seen in, in in the 13th century in England, and over the years, it developed into into one of the most important uh, writs or causes of action uh, in the English speaking world, and and in some of the non non English speaking world as well. And what it does, uh, well, actually, what it means is you you have the body. And so it, it means that if someone, if some person, because habeas corpus only applies to persons. But remember, person is simply someone who has the capacity for rights, not a human being. Because sometimes human beings have been persons, sometimes they have been things. Right. So when a person is detained against his or her will, uh, any other person can go into court and bring the, atten- the detention of that other person to to the uh, attention of a judge and the judge uh, will be asked to issue a writ of habeas corpus which means the judge will will issue a writ to the jailer to the person who is detaining that third party and order that the third party be brought into court and that the jailer uh, be required to give a legally sufficient reason for detaining that person against their will and so the writ of habeas corpus, uh, certainly in the state of New York in, in the United States, in which we have chosen to file our first cases, is a very powerful writ. It's understood to be you know, a highly honored, highly respected, seen as very important. And But it also has a couple technical things that assist us. One is that unlike almost every other cause of action, uh, for example, say, say, say I, I sign a contract with you and you breach it and I then sue you and lose, I can't sue you again. There is something called res judicata, which means that the thing has been adjudicated, the thing's been settled. You basically get one bite at the apple. But in a writ of habeas corpus, certainly in the state of New York, you can keep filing suits again and again and again. And we've done that in, in, in the state of New York. We filed all of our lawsuits uh, twice so so far. So that that's one of the reasons why we, we choose a writ of habeas corpus, because it's so powerful, it's so broad, it's so flexible. And uh, if we lose, we can then sit back, reorganize and file again. And there's something else in the state of New York with respect to writ of habeas corpus in that you can file it anywhere you want. So when we have gone in front of a court in one part of the state and that court has uh, turned us down uh, and we we look to see why they turned us down and then we we, we try to fix that. And then we might then then we've chosen to refile the case uh, in a different part of the state of New York. Uh, saying instead of a rural judge, this time we're going to go in front of, an, of, of, of a New York City judge. Yeah, fantastic. So how many lawsuits have you got on the go, like in New York and then right across the states? Well, right now uh, we have uh, three lawsuits. All of them are uh, on appeal to an intermediate appellate court in the state of New York. Uh, so there are about, I don't know, 300 uh, trial courts in the state of New York, and each of them feeds into, the, or they feed into four intermediate appellate courts, and then all those four intermediate appellate courts feed into one high court. And so we have three cases right now in one of those intermediate appellate courts. Uh, we have a brief in, in in one of them, and we're hoping to uh, argue in front of that intermediate, intermediate uh, appellate court sometime in the fall. So if you've got multiple 
lawsuits on the go, does that complicate things in that, you know, a judge might be wary of setting a precedent for or against while there's other similar lawsuits unfolding? Well, we have found something interesting in that the, we've already been in front of three appellate, intermediate appellate courts in the state of New York. Uh, we've lost in front of each of them, but for completely different reasons. And each of the appellate courts has not recognized that any other appellate court has ever ruled. So it's clear that uh, that the appellate courts of the state of New York don't have any really clear idea as to how to respond to us. And also all three of the appellate courts, we think, have been clearly wrong, but for different reasons. So. We, you know, we also understand that this is the first time in the world in which anyone's done this and that judges are conservative folks, which is one, one of the things I say in the film, Unlocking the Cage. You, you see me at the end talking about the fact that, that judges can be conservative and uh, they don't want to jump into something. And so we never expected to, uh, to win our, the early years of our cases. What we expect to do is to make a steady, if slow progress, which we are. Every time we filed a suit, we've made steady but slow progress uh, and uh, we're also way ahead of where we thought we would be uh, two and a half years after we filed our first suits in December 2013. So what are these successes to date? Well, it, the uh, the last suit in which there was a written opinion uh, was the uh, second time we filed the suit involving Hercules and Leo. And that was the first case we filed in New York City. And this is the case, this is the case that the that the film Un Unlocking the Cage really focuses on because uh, uh, you know, because we have this, uh, you know, argument, a kind of a shootout in, in, a, in a trial court in uh, New York City. And there are many procedural obstacles to us, as, as you might imagine. Um, uh, for example, th there's the obstacle of what lawyers call standing, in that usually um, in an English-speaking court, for someone to be able to, um, to sue, that plaintiff has to have been injured by the defendant, and the court has to be able to, to give some kind of a remedy. So, in other words, if somebody um, breaks a contract with you, I can't go in and file a breach of contract on your behalf because I don't have standing because I wasn't injured. But you, you are the one who would do that because you do have standing because you were you were injured by by the defendant. So here, for the first time, the Non-Human Rights Project filed a lawsuit in which we were overtly filing it on behalf of a third person. And we never claimed that we were injured, but we did claim that the third person, which is we argued was a chimpanzee, was injured. And so one of the first things that we were finally able to get to get over in that Hercules and Leo case in July of 2015 was the judge agreed that we did indeed have standing, even though we were not injured. And so that and a, a, a half dozen or more other sort of procedural um, roadblocks we have been able to surmount as we move our way towards um, towards being able to uh, to, to gain le uh, legal personhood for purposes of a writ of habeas corpus on behalf of a chimpanzee. I understand that while all the cases are separate and they're all being treated as quite separate lawsuits, to my mind they're all the same in that a chimp is being or, or a great ape is being held captive. What differences does the law see between cases? What possible differences can there be between one chimp being held captive here and another chimp being held captive over there? I don't think there really is, is any difference, uh, uh, and, and there should not be any, any difference. Uh, sometimes when a judge or someone else has said, well, aren't you, aren't you concerned about their welfare? And, and I tell the judge, and you can see it in the movie, Unlocking the Cage, uh, I, I think at, at, at least once, where I say, we're not concerned about the welfare of the chimpanzee. We're concerned about their freedom. 
for example, what happens if if I am kidnapped by someone who takes me somewhere and gives me medical care, uh, uh, you know, feeds me, keeps me in good health, and my wife goes in and seeks a writ of habeas corpus? Is the judge going to say, "Well, how are they treating him over there?" Right. The judge, judge going to say, "Do you want to be kidnapped? Do you want to be there or not?" If the answer is no, then you are you're entitled to come back. So the question of how you're being treated is absolutely irrelevant, which is what many of my friends in the zoo community can't grasp. Surely, in terms of precedence, you only need one success then for the, all the others then to follow suit. Well, not necessarily. Uh, for the United States, uh, for example, we have, I think, 53 jurisdictions, and the law of each of those 53 jurisdictions is different. So... Just just because we we either find success or defeat in one one American state doesn't necessarily govern the law of any of the other 52 other American jurisdictions. And then, of course, we're working not just in the United States. Uh, you know, one that I just came back from a, a three week trip in Europe and uh, uh, I met with uh, people with whom we're, we're working in Spain, uh, in, in England. We're working with people in uh, in uh, Portugal and, and France and Switzerland and Argentina and Australia. And so. It's really it's really a worldwide struggle that we are catalyzing and we understand we're catalyzing when we're standing in a courtroom in the state of New York. Right. It's really interesting to hear you talk about Hercules and Leo like I don't know that they're they sound like they're friends of yours. We I've, I've been thinking about them and working with them for the last three years. They almost do feel uh, that they that that, uh, that they are our friends. But I think most important for the lawyers in the non-human rights project, we feel they are our clients and anybody who interferes with them uh, gets our immediate attention. And we will will not stand for and uh, anybody who treats them badly. We will try to do whatever we can to get them out of the grips of these people who have been exploiting them since they were born. And getting them to a sanctuary, this spectacular sanctuary called Save the Chimps in Fort Pierce, Florida. Do you have much first-hand experience with your chimpanzee clients? Well, with our specific clients, the only one I've ever seen is Tommy. Uh, I've never seen uh, Kiko, and I've never seen Hercules and Leo. I've seen photographs of them. Uh, some of them. Sometimes I've seen videos of them. I've read about them. I have a pretty decent amount of experience with with uh, with chimpanzees and bonobos. Uh, I have visit, been visiting the laboratories of the ones who are involved in um, language research or number research uh, all around the world for the last 30 years. And I spent a week or so up in the Kibali Mountains a few years ago uh, tracking wild chimpanzees in Uganda. Uh, so I, I have indeed uh, spent uh, uh, some reasonable amount of time with uh, chimpanzees and bonobos. And so what's what's this the situation of captive great apes in the U.S.? Because I understand that vivisection that involves great apes is no longer allowed in the States. So why are there chimps still in cages around the U.S.? It's, it's certainly not something that we encounter here in Australia. So can you explain how and why that is occurring? Yes, there are still chimpanzees who are being held by people privately, you know, in their backyard uh, or in their basement. Uh, or they're being held in roadside zoos, or they're being held in zoos that aren't roadside. You know, Any time that a chimpanzee, for whatever reason, is being held captive and is not in a sanctuary, they are, they are a target for the Non-Human Rights Project. They're being held legally. That's, that's the point we make to the judges, indeed, because the judges say, well, why don't you sue under some kind of an animal welfare statute? And we say, the problem, judge, is that it's legal 
to brutalize these animals by by holding them as captive slaves. And the only thing that we can do is to uh, is to go in under something like a writ writ of habeas corpus to try to free them and bring them to uh, save the chimps or some other sanctuary. Can you change the animal welfare law so that it's so it is not longer legal to hold chimps? Well, we we are not an animal welfare or animal protection organization. Uh, there's plenty of animal welfare and animal protection organizations out there. Uh, we are a civil rights organization. You know, we're not interested in in changing the law so that captives, non-human animals, as chimpanzees, continue to be things that human beings can pass statutes about. We're interested in giving them rights that they so that people can come like us can come in and actually vindicate the legal rights that they themselves hold. Right. So can you give me um, a, a rough idea of how many chimps are being held around the states, like a ballpark figure? That is really hard for me to do. Uh, uh, I would guess in, in, in the hundreds. That's a lot. So you regard what you're doing now as the thin end of the wedge for animal rights in that if great apes and dolphins and elephants, etc., are granted personhood, it is realistic to expect that this might then slowly trickle or even hopefully cascade through to other animals. I, I think that's certainly uh, possible. It's something that we think about uh, right now because all non-human animals are legal things who don't have any rights at all. Whenever someone might bring a case in front of a judge claiming that a non-human animal ought to have a right, the judge simply realizes that there are things and, and dismisses the case without actually looking at the nature of the non-human animal and asking much more nuanced and sophisticated and fact-driven questions like, who is this animal? Uh, what sort of mind do they have? I mean, how cognitively complex they are? How, how do they feel? Uh, what, it, so that it becomes um, not just a matter of are you a thing, but you begin to take a close look at the immense amount of scientific research, for example, that might have, have come down about them so that when judges are deciding who should be a person, that is, who should have the capacity for rights and who should not, the judge is relying upon science, not upon some kind of law that, that, that began 2,000 years ago. And then once a non-human animal is seen as a legal person for any reason, then the judge can begin looking at the question of, well, f f under what circumstances should, in, should this, this species or that species of non-human animal have a legal right? So we are hoping that our work catalyzes a re-examination of the relationship between non-human animals and the law. Yeah, right. The, I mean, the implications are quite profound. The documentary, Unlocking the Cage, that's currently being shown around the world. What kind of reception is it getting? Uh, to our delight, it's getting tremendous reception. Uh, uh, very rarely have we gotten a negative one. Uh, I, I can only think of, uh, of one off the top of my head, uh, and that was where... A, a person who was um, reviewing our <laughs> our uh, film uh, said, well, it seemed to me that I was just trying to trick the judges. And I thought, why would somebody, you know, obviously someone is grossly ignorant as to what we're doing because lawyers, number one, have no, have no idea how to trick judges. Number two, judges aren't trickable. <laughs> and yeah. number three, you know, we're, we're out there, you know, saying we're trying to change the legal system. But other than that, we've had uh, extraordinary extraordinarily uh, positive reviews. We just, we, uh, two weeks ago, we got a spectacular review in the New York Times. Uh, we think we have a good one coming out. We're hoping in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, and uh, we, if, if we have dozens of them. Uh, I'm on like uh, Google Alerts and they kind of ping almost every single day that some, someone somewhere has given the 
uh, non-human rights project and Un unlocking the cage, a good film review. And of course, one of the reasons it, uh, is that the filmmakers, D.A. Pennybaker and Chris Hedges, are probably two of the most well-respected filmmakers, documentary filmmakers in the entire world. Uh, D.A. Pennybaker is the only documentary filmmaker ever to win an Academy Award for Lifetime Achievement. Uh, he's one of the founders of Cinema Verite. Uh, his, his wife and filmmaking partner, Chris Hedges, has been nominated for Academy Award. Uh, they are you know, highly well-respected. And we see that as we go around the world and we watch people come up to them almost in awe that they're in the presence of Penny Baker and Hedges and people who we've now become friends with and have gotten used to. That's fantastic. And and how do you think that this fantastic reception that you're getting for the documentary, how's that going to help the project and its lawsuits? We think it already has. Uh, and it's going to more uh, be, because it's, it's not only being shown at film festivals, but uh, it's being uh, it, it, it was purchased by um, HBO, by the BBC, uh, German, French, uh, Danish and uh, Dutch television. Uh, so it is indeed being shown not just in film festivals and also around the world in theaters, too. I, I was just at the London premiere at the Barcelona premiere. Uh, but all, but on the all these TV stations as as well, and I think HBO has a contract to show it for the next five years. So what it's going to show is what the problems are, why we exist, what we're doing, how we are you know, very carefully putting together a strategy. Now, how we're really sober-minded, extraordinarily determined. A band of lawyers and and others in the non-human rights project who are are going to change the legal status of non-human animals, at least some of them, from being things to persons. Once we've seen the documentary, what can Australian audiences do to support the non-human rights project? Well, we are working with um, Australian lawyers, uh, in and so if you want to work in in Australia, um, uh, coming out of Voiceless, I think uh, 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 the lawyers in Voiceless are really at the are the leading edge in Australia. And so we, we work with them on a regular basis. So uh, I would contact the folks at Voiceless. They may be able to tell you what it is you can do in Australia. If you want to support the Non-Human Rights Project, well, uh, go onto our website. If you want to send us money, you're certainly welcome to do that. We will use it to get more lawyers and, 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 and other people as we continue to litigate throughout the United States and, and do our work throughout the world. That was Stephen Wise president of the Non-Human Rights Project and the central figure in the new documentary, Unlocking the Cage. Stephen's making history by filing the first lawsuits that seek to transform an animal from a thing with no rights to a person with legal protections. I'm going to quote the film's directors. Steve is determined to change the legal system and his optimism and perseverance may very well do it. Already, Steve's lawsuits have brought animal personhood to the forefront of the conversation surrounding our society's relationship with animals. The science is on his side and our culture is shifting. We believe that years from now, Steve's lawsuits will be seen as a landmark moment that changed the course of the animal rights movement. Make sure you get to see Unlocking the Cage at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival. The festival is running from the 28th of July until August the 14th. Dressed in black. 
possibly my most favourite animal rights song ever. That was I Broke the Law by Joy Askew. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. Okay, so are you familiar with slam poetry? No? Well, I've got one for you and it's a cracker. It's a slam poem by Emily Moran Barwick, also known as Bite Size Vegan. It's called The Greatest Lie Ever Told. They say the greatest trick ever pulled, the most egregious deception, was the devil's manipulation of our collective perception of his very existence. See, we humans give little persistence to concepts unpleasant. Just give us an out, an excuse, a distraction, and watch us take action. No matter how transparent or lacking in logic, grab hold and frantically mold into a mental blindfold this welcome justification for maintaining status quo. But this isn't about the devil or the usual suspects, though I will interject, by the way, that quote came 126 years before Kaiser so say. But I fear I digress. See, there's a lie even greater, a trick even more clever, a deception so deep it may be impossible to sever from our collective reality. You see, because this one's universal, no devil needed just human persistence, unhindered by atheistic resistance of good and evil embodied just facts. But for the believers of evil incarnate, it's far from discordant. This lie so entrenched, so perverse, so abhorrent that attribution to someone, anyone, anything but us is ideal. Please just don't peel back the mask. Please no grand reveal of our true humane nature. See, just a subtle sound alteration is all that is needed for our complete emancipation from any implication in something unkind. After all, this word is derived from our very species, humane from human. We're the fount of compassion. Now here's where the real beauty lies. The real beauty of our lies is that we humans dictate what is humane. No matter how profane an action may be, you see, it's our word, after all. So we sing our own praises back and forth to each other, teach our children about kindness. Now, pass the turkey to your brother. Lessons in sharing carried out over corpses. Manners in the face of murder are key. Gotta teach the kitties not to question the grim reality of what's on the very plate before them. Please just ignore them, these bodies and secretions. Call it meat and milk and ham and eggs. Focus on free range and cage free and grass fed because we're humane. So we've come to it now. The greatest lie ever told, one so brazen, unapologetically bold in its utter transparency, yet so readily, hungrily, desperately accepted clung to, cared for, cradled ever so cautiously. A conscience gnawing uncertain certainty we solidify and smooth over and pass down the line, telling our kids it's okay, it's fine, from our generation to the next. Repetition breeds truth. We teach what we know, which is what we were taught. The biggest lie ever bought in our own greatest trick is the sick conviction that we can kill in a way that is kind. We can enslave and torture and beat and bind and just don't look, it's okay. Close your eyes, dear, it's fine. Don't pull back the curtain here, just open wide. 
Let me sing you assurances. Let me drown out their screams because being part of the majority certainly means that we're in the right, right? It's necessary. It has to be. It's meant to be. It's always been our right, our choice, our tradition, our dominion over them. We are not monsters. We're humane. Block out the sheds full of feces. Put the blood behind doors. Don't look down at the floors slick and pulsing with crimson from still beating hearts full of parts hacked from bodies for our satisfaction. Hold on tight, my dear, to the latest distraction and let the uncertainty pass. You are good. You are kind. Drink your milk here, my dear. No thoughts of the child left behind with no mother or milk of his own. It's our right to take it. We're entitled. It's not unbridled greed. We're good people. We kill kindly. It's not a farce, not a fable. We're humane. See, look, here's the label. Packaging is everything. Because bright and happy words on bright and happy products come from bright and happy farms with bright and happy animals with bright and happy deaths. They don't feel a thing. Or they do, but it's okay. It's meant to be this way. They're not human. We're humane. Just don't read the fine print, my dear. See, that's where it all fails. Because you know who they say lies there in the details. Back to him again. Now I'm the liar, I guess. I must acquiesce that this was about the devil, after all. Though, please do recall the universality, because it's not about deity, it's us. Don't you see? The harsh reality uttered in 1920 by William Ralph Ng. If animals could formulate their own religion, their most certain decision would be the most damning to our fragile conviction of humane humanity built from their very reality of hell on earth. No need for ethereal theology, because their depiction of the ultimate trickster would be the real kicker, a true devil incarnate, the perpetrator of carnage so heinous it renders our blindfolds transparent and torn, for their devil rightfully takes human form.
Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. This is Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM. That earlier slam poem is entitled The Greatest Lie Ever Told and it's by Emily Moran Barwick. Then the track that followed was The Hunt by System Failure. Now I've got some community announcements. Animal Rights Cinema is presenting the Melbourne premiere of the documentary Life According to Ohad. Tickets are 15 bucks, and if you could book in advance, that's great. It's showing at Fitzroy in Fitzroy North, and it's going to be on Wednesday, July the 6th. Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign is screening Plastic Paradise, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. That's going to be at Peppermint Grove in Perth on Friday, July 8. Uh, you can book your ticket. It's free, but book in advance, and entry is by gold coin donation. Melbourne Chicken Save Rally is on in Melbourne's Burke Street Mall on Saturday, July the 9th at noon. Then at 1pm, that is like an hour after, the Thousand Eyes and Virtual Reality Experience is on in the same place, which is very convenient. Cheltenham Cat Rescue is having their Mad Catters Winter Soiree in Elwood on Saturday, July the 9th. Tickets are 40 to $50 and you can book online. All of those events have uh, Facebook event pages, so just look them up accordingly. They will also make their way onto the Freedom of Species Facebook page over the course of this week. Okie dokie, that's it. Thanks heaps to Stephen Wise, Emily Moran Barwick, Joy Askew and System Failure. You can contact Freedom of Species by email, info at freedomofspecies.org. Or you can reach us by Facebook or by Twitter. Here's another jaunty system failure song, Belly of the Beast. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.